everybody. This is Crystal. Welcome back to Alternative Interests. I'm really excited to be here. I have with me a potential new host. She's really excited to be here. Uh, Due to her work and the fact that she works with uh, young, impressionable minds, she's actually not going to be using her real name. We have not decided what her name is yet, so she's just going to... You know what? Let's call you Princess Poppy. Let's let's do it. Let's do it. I feel good about that, so I'm going to go with it. Yes. (laughs) Princess Poppy it is. And, you know... um, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, so we can just hop right into this. Great. And actually, Princess Poppy is going to be telling the story this week. I am. I'm super excited. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I have been a, a fan of true crime for a long time. So to be on this end now as a storyteller is um, exciting, but I'm super nervous as well. Don't be nervous. Everyone will love you. I I hope so, (laughs) because I am really nervous. So uh, I'll just hop right into it then. I am going to tell you the story of Stephen Gibson. And um, this took place in Peoria, which is a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, a little before 2 a.m. on March 1st of 2013, the Peoria, Arizona Police Department received a frantic 911 call from a woman named Michelle Gibson. Um, She had said that she had just gotten home from shopping with her two teenage children, Alyssa, who was 17, and Stephen Jr., who was um, 15 at the time. Now, I'm going to refer to Stephen Jr. as Rosie because that is a nickname, I guess, that he had, and that's what his friends knew him as. That's interesting. That's that's kind of a... I feel bad saying this, but that's kind of a feminine nickname for a boy. That's funny you should say that. Yes, that that is a feminine name for a teenage boy. And apparently all of his friends called him that. His mom called him that. I don't think Stephen Sr., his dad, ever called him that. And so you can kind of read into the issues right there. But we'll get okay. more into that later. But anyways... Like I said, before 2 a.m. that day, she had just gotten home shopping with her two kids, and she said that she found her husband dead in the garage, and there was blood everywhere. And she is, I've heard the 911 call. She is frantic. So I'm, my first thought here, I know you haven't gotten very far. 1 a.m. is a really late shopping trip. I, you know what? That's what I was thinking too. But then I started thinking, because I was trying to come into this with an open mind, I started thinking, well, I'm sure there are some habits that I have that people would find strange. So maybe, okay, okay. you know, maybe Michelle Gibson and her children enjoy going out shopping in the middle of the night. I don't know. <laughs> Who am you know, I to judge, right? <laughs> right, okay. So anyways, police get there. So police arrive on the scene just minutes after the 911 call is placed. And what they find when they get to the scene is that the garage door is wide open, which they find a little odd because it wasn't like it was wide open and the cars were inside. It was wide open and there was a pickup truck that was backed up halfway into the garage. So it was half in and half out. And as they walked closer to the garage, they saw a body that was wrapped up in blankets and a towel 
and it was laying half on a dolly and half on the floor. So you know what I'm when I'm talking about the dolly, I'm talking about those hand carts, those metal yeah. hand carts you use for moving. So it was as if someone was trying to get him into the back of the truck, but obviously yeah. had failed. That is weird. Whose truck was it? Um, it ended up being his truck. It was okay. his truck. Okay. So they are kind of like, okay, this is odd. So further investigation of the scene reveals more blood, blood smeared walls. There was a very bloody path that was continuing from the garage up through the house, up the stairs, through the hall, into the master bedroom and master bathroom, where obviously the initial attack took place because that's where there was tons of blood that they found too. Isn't it absolutely crazy I mean, I can't imagine my my body possessing that much fluid, but like, that's insane. Exactly. And so from just the amount of blood, the police officers knew, like, this wasn't just a random attack. Like, if it was a random attack, it's usually in one spot. And then, you know, because the the person who did it wants to get in and out fast. But Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the body has been moved quite a bit. And there's blood all over the place. They also spot, going into the scene, a bloody metal baseball bat, a bottle of bleach, some duct tape, tons of trash bags, and a pair of black gloves. I'm sorry. I'm just laughing because (laughs) I'm picturing the amount of blood here. Yeah. And it's like... The, the whole expectations versus reality thing. Yeah. Like, did you really think that one bottle yeah, exactly. of bleach was going to cut it? Exactly. And then sometimes when I hear about, like, the cleanup of the crime scene, I'm like, so you were going to then leave the bottle of bleach there and the duct tape and the trash bags? like And the gloves? like And the murder weapon, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, don't you, like, take that stuff with you? <laughs> So officers, therefore, well, they didn't even bring the body with them. So like these people are just not prepared. Exactly. Exactly. And it was obvious. And you know what? The officers thought the very same thing, too. Their first impression was this was a very violent, very personal attack. So the police are like, okay, something is up here. So they immediately escort the family off the crime scene because obviously it's a fresh crime scene and they need to get them out of there to do their investigation. And they want to ask the family what happened that night, right? So as police are securing the crime scene, and I mean as a police officer is literally putting up the yellow tape, a 16-year-old male with bloody clothes and no shoes on, and a 14-year-old female just come up out of nowhere up to an officer who, again, is literally putting up the crime scene tape. And the 16-year-old male, who is Eric McBee, says, I'm the one, I'm the one that did that in there. Like, totally admits involvement. Yeah, um, just... But also, <laughs> it's like... It, Dude, you are very obviously covered in blood. Exactly. Like, I'm pretty sure I can connect A and B, but thank you for telling me. Exactly. So, and Karen too, which was the 14-year-old female, she walks up too with him and she's like, yep, we did it. And they're just standing there like, okay, so what do we do next? 
Now, I was thinking when I was reading about this that that police officer, like, I imagine him being, like, some rookie police officer going, score, like, (laughs) case closed. I found the murderer. So, obviously, they're a little taken aback by that because Eric and um, Karen come out of nowhere. Yeah, and their kids. And their kids. Yeah, they're teenagers. So they immediately take Eric and Karen back to the station. And this is when Eric sits down and just gives a full confession. Doesn't ask for a lawyer, nothing, just gives his full confession. And So a question about that, you're not supposed to be able to speak to a minor without their parents present. So... You know what? I think his mom got there at some point. I'll have to look back at that because there is actual footage of his initial confession. They mm-hmm. videotaped his confession, and there is a woman in the room that obviously looks like she had just gotten out of bed, and she has her hands in her head a lot of the time. And so I'm assuming that maybe it is his mom that's okay. in there, and she's probably going, what the F yeah. is going she's on? She's like, I haven't had my coffee. I know. <laughs> She's like, I leave you alone for one day. (laughs) So he gives a full confession. He says he was hanging out with the Gibson kids that evening. And then Michelle Gibson decided that around 1030 that they were going to um, leave and go shopping. And Eric, or not Eric, I'm sorry, that um, Rosie and Alyssa were going with her. And so when they had left, Eric said that he stayed behind to play video games, which I don't know. If I'm hanging out at somebody's house as a teenager and they're leaving, I never stayed behind by myself. Yeah. I mean, there's so many really weird things about this story. Like, first of all, it is very suspicious that... They're le- well, one that they're leaving at 10.30 p.m. But remember, because those are their habits. I <laughs> know. We're not judging, except I'm judging. Yes, exactly. No, I judged from the moment <laughs> they left. <laughs> but also, like, how convenient that they happen to leave. This is just, it's setting things up in my brain. Exactly. So, Although, to play devil's advocate, I will say that when I was growing up, In high school, I did have a very select few friends that it was completely normal for me to just walk into their house. Like, I wouldn't knock on the door. It was just kind of, you know, walk in, make yourself at home. If they're not home, wait for them to get home. Yeah, Um, but usually their parents were there or somebody else was there that you knew, right? That you felt comfortable with. Definitely not me by myself. Yeah. I don't think they would leave you there by yourself. I was trying to remember a time like, you know, that I was left alone in somebody else's house, but that never happened. I I think I would either, if, if my friends were leaving and if I wasn't going with them, then I would be going back to my house. Yeah. I don't know. That's just my, that's, but who knows? Who knows these what they are do their in habits, yes. and we are not <laughs> exactly. I mean, them. these are people that leave in the middle of the night to go shopping, so we never know. Yeah. So anyways, he said he stayed behind and continued playing video games in Rosie's room, but that he had remembered that he left his phone in Alyssa's bedroom. So when he went to retrieve it, he was confronted by the dad, Stephen Sr., who then 
just randomly decided to shove and punch him, is what Eric said. And so an obvious response to someone shoving and punching you, especially when you're in their house and nobody else is home, is that you would then find a metal baseball bat to protect yourself with. I mean, this sounds completely reasonable to me. (laughs) Totally reasonable because, I mean, (laughs) hello, I was just getting my phone and you pushed me. So Yeah, (laughs) and I know I'm an intruder in your home, but manners still matter. (laughs) Exactly. So Eric said that in order to protect himself, he bashed Stephen Sr. on the side of the head three times. Because, again, that is a normal reaction to the situation that you find yourself in. I understand the first time (laughs) because, you know, so I'm thinking like the fight or flight response, like sometimes, um, and you know, honestly, personally speaking, I'm a fight. Sometimes I'm a flight. Other times it kind of depends like how many has been going. Honestly, I'm a a play dead is what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I do not have fight or flight. I feel like in... A fight, flight, and they've actually added freeze to that now. So you're a freeze. Oh, I'm a freeze. Good. There's a name for it now. There is. Um, I know that sometimes when I have gone into a fight mode, that first instinctive, like, it it ends up literally being like a pathetic, like, flick of the wrist. <laughs> it doesn't strike as hard because you're, you're acting on reflex. So yeah. then you just got to get, like, one more thought out one in. So... I can almost forgive him the first two, but then why are we hitting him again? He's probably down by now. I mean, when he says he's confronted by the dad, when he's just retrieving a, a cell phone, I ha- I don't know how it goes from zero to bashing his head in three times with a bat. Right. Like, I mean, because I can imagine... If this were the case and this happened, maybe Steven Sr. doing, you know, like, what are you doing in my house? Okay, well, then you explain, oh, I'm, you know, Rosie's friend and I left my phone in Alyssa's room. I was just about to head on out. I don't- and you would hope that any friend that's in the house, that obviously the mother didn't ask him to leave. Because yeah. I feel like if I'm leaving the house and yeah. someone's like not getting the hint, I'd be like, come, come here. Exactly. This is a door. Exactly. But we're, we're obviously leaving. she knows him well enough and trusts him enough to leave him in the house. Mm-hmm. You would think the father would, would know, know too. Would know too. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so then Eric says that he runs downstairs. And the police are like, okay, well, why'd you run downstairs? And he's like, oh, you know, I really don't remember because I smoked spice that day. <laughs> <laughs> he's so hardcore. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is Peoria, Arizona, so I don't know. And this is also like pre-legalization, I think. Exactly. And which is spice is a synthetic marijuana, apparently. If you don't know your marijuanas, spice is a synthetic. Aren't they all synthetic? No, they're natural. They're natural because they're plants. I mean, maybe... Maybe I just had some real dumbass friends growing up. Because I'm I'm not even kidding here and feel free to laugh at the people I associated with. But I had a few friends who would smoke spice and I I swear to God, they were smoking literal dried spices. <laughs> like nutmeg and Yeah, like especially <laughs> the leafy ones. Did it smell good? I don't I know I was never there. Oh, okay. 
but like they'd all be like, "Oh, we smoked spice the other night," and it's like, yeah, like like oregano. Yeah, and <laughs> I'm picturing some like cinnamon and nutmeg mixed with some thyme and like basil. Yeah, yeah some basil in there to round it all out. Um, I, you know what? Probably smelled really good, better than like cheap marijuana that does not smell good at all. Yeah. So, um, I mean. I come back from a hiatus and here I am sounding like a dumbass. So uh, if any listeners can explain smoking spice to us. That would be helpful because. Like, Educate me. So anyways, he doesn't remember why he ran downstairs, but he does remember going back upstairs to check on Mr. Gibson. Because after you smash someone in the head, you're like, well, I'm going to go check on them and just well, make- because he's a caring human. Exactly. We, we got to take care of each other. Exactly. And he said when he got up there, he was surprised to see Mr. Gibson was standing up. So he decided that he was going to help Mr. Gibson into the master bathroom. I don't know why. Maybe he wanted to help him clean up the blood gushing from his head. That's I'm, where the good drugs are. Yeah, probably, right? That's where the spice is kept. Um, <laughs> so he helped him into the master uh, bathroom, and he was taken aback when Stephen Sr. grabbed his shirt. So again, Eric says he forget what happened because, again, synthetic marijuana, but he may have been scared and decided to bash Stephen Sr. in the head a few more times. Okay. We've got some convenient amnesia in this punk-ass bitch who just decided, okay. He should have gone shopping is what I... Yes, that is what we're gathering here. That is the lesson here tonight. So um, he bashes his head in a few more times, and then uh, Eric says he runs downstairs to get a gun. Okay, number one, questions. How do you know there's a gun downstairs? Right, this child who isn't even, like, a part of your house. (laughs) Exactly. And you know where the gun is kept? Um, But Eric, being the upstanding citizen that he is, he decided a gun would be too loud. So he just... That's the problem. The decibel range is the problem with the gun. Okay. But, you know, Crystal, he's thinking ahead here is what I see. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's thinking ahead. All right. But he then thought gun is going to be too loud. So I'm going to grab a knife instead. So he said he grabbed the knife and then went back upstairs. Again, Mr. Gibson wasn't following him. Mr. Gibson is obviously upstairs, incapacitated. Um, But Eric decides to grab a knife and he proceeds up the stairs to stab him in the chest several times and then slit his throat. Ooh. Yeah. That is rough. Yeah. That nutmeg will do it to you every time, you know? So the police were like, yeah, something is not right here. Listening to his confession, seeing the crime scene, the police right away, just like us, were kind of like, 
this, something's not adding up. Well, several things are not adding up. A lot of things. All right. So let's rewind a little bit. Um, okay. Because I want to tell you a little bit about our victim, Stephen Gibson Sr. So Stephen Gibson was born on October 12th, 1973 in Phoenix. And everyone close to him described him as somebody who loved life and was just happy all the time. His step adopted daughter said that um, he was a man with a huge smile all the time and he was happiest when he was working with his hands. His entire family agrees that he worked very hard to provide for Michelle and the rest of his family, but he also loved to have fun. Um, And he was just one of those guys. And we all know a guy like this, that every time you see them, they have a story to tell. And it's always like a really funny story. Right. And so he sounds so nice. Yeah. And so that was Steven. He was just a happy, fun guy. Well, when Steven was 16 years old, he was working at a sub shop in Phoenix. And that is when he met um, Michelle Vandertorn, which is his wife now. And what a name. I know. I looked, I was like, yeah, Michelle Vandertorn. I don't think I would have changed my last name if my last name was I know, Vandertorn. I would have changed my name. <laughs> I'm like, uh, my name is Michelle Vandertorn. Um, anyways, Michelle was a 19-year-old single mother of two, already at the age of 19. Um, she had two children, Ashley and Amber, um, whom she had with another guy named Robbie. But that relationship was bad. They broke up and um, he was kind of gone from their lives completely when they broke up. And so she was left with a two-year-old and a three-month-old at the age of 19, which, yeah, I had my first child when I was 28. I couldn't imagine having um, one at 19. So, uh, let alone two, exactly a two year old and a three month old, you know, they're both still in diapers. Um, yeah, well, obviously the three month old is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, during the time, um, she was working at the sub shop with, uh, Steven, things were going bad. That was when things were going bad in her relationship. And she often found herself confiding, confiding in Steven at work and they became super close. Um, and so eventually when she ended things with Robbie, her and Steven started dating, which if you think about it, Steven at 16 years old, that's pretty, uh, responsible, not well, I don't need or commendable to start dating a 19 year old that has two, with two kids. two kids. Yeah. But also at the same time, there's this part of me that's like, uh, he's a minor. I know the age of consent yeah. in a lot of states is 16. Yeah. And this was like the, not the 70s. So he was born in 73. This is the 90s. Yeah. Um, it's, there's still like a corner of my brain that's like, yeah. but. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know what? I didn't think about that too. So maybe I was like, oh, that's fine. A 16 year old. Totally fine. Um, but I guess if roles were reversed, like in any situation like that, if that was a 19 year old boy and a 16 year old girl, I bet there would be more. Um, yeah, there would probably be more eyebrows. About yeah. Uh huh. So Stephen immediately steps into the father role, no questions asked. And wow. both girls knew him as their dad from the moment 
that Michelle and Steven were officially together. So he was 16 and steps into that role. About four years later in 1994, Steven and Michelle make it official and they get married. Um, Steven, yeah, I know. So it was like a nice little love story, right? Um, Steven gets a really good job at a railroad construction company. And by all accounts, they're just like a happy fun, loving couple. And he is there raising the two girls alongside with Michelle. They, Michelle and Steven were this just young, happy couple. And family said that they often would go together um, on weekend road trips um, on his Harley to Las Vegas or Laughlin, Nevada. And they just wanted to have fun. They were just all about having fun and being together. Unfortunately, about a year into their marriage in 1995, Stephen was involved in a horrible accident at work and he suffered life-threatening injuries. A railroad tie had fallen off some sort of lift at work and um, Stephen was either standing and was standing behind it or in front of it. I can't remember, but the railroad tie fell onto him and it critically injured his uh, back, neck and spine. And so railroad ties, especially when you're working on a railroad and in railroad construction, I mean, depending on how high that fell off of, I I can imagine that does some serious damage. Yeah, because these things, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know what a railroad tie is, it's the solid, it's like a giant nail Mm -hmm. that actually secures the railroad track into the ground. So the whole reason that railroad tracks aren't flinging around willy-nilly when a train goes over them is because these giant steel nails are essentially holding them into the earth. And aren't they something like six to 10 feet long? They're huge. Yeah. And I was looking, I was trying to look up the weight of one and I couldn't get an exact weight, but like they're made out of steel, like iron and steel, I guess. I don't know. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but they are pretty hefty railroad ties. So this required Stephen to have major surgery that significantly altered his life. And so for the next few months after that, he was in and out of the hospital doing rehabilitation. Um, And obviously an injury like that is something you never 100% recover from. Right. So so especially with your back. And I mean, like I, I remember a couple, and this is not to say it's comparable to what Stephen went through, but... When you're talking about back pain or muscle pain, especially in the back, even if you like kink your neck a little bit, it really hurts. So I can't imagine having a life-threatening injury that affects your back and how much pain you're in because... Yeah. And I just looked it up. It looks like railroad ties are anywhere from 100 to 300 pounds on average, about 200. So you're talking about like... Two full grown adults falling on your spine at the same time. And like it's it's a more concentrate. It's not as big as an adult. It's smaller. Yeah. Especially when you're when you're not bracing for it. You know yeah, how and you're not expecting exactly. it. Exactly. Oh, awful. Yeah. So um he was in quite a bit of pain even after the many surgeries that he had had. So he was being prescribed painkillers just to help make his daily life comfortable for him. Because obviously, again, he's not gonna go back to being one hundred percent. 
And, you know, the family said that through all of this, Michelle was just a very devoted, loving wife, and she was by his side through it all, standing next to him. So were her girls. They loved Stephen. They cared about him, and she did anything to help him. She was in the recovery room at the surgeries, at the hospital with him. She was just a very loving wife, and you could tell that she really loved and cared about Stephen. So it was definitely that time was a definite dark time for the Gibsons. But then, fortunately, in October of that same year, their daughter Alyssa was born. And this was uh, Stephen and Michelle's first biological child together. And by all accounts, when Alyssa was born, that was just like a bright light and joy that came into their life after a really hard time. So every, yeah, definitely. So this was like, you know, that light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it was just a really happy thing to happen. So things were going well. Stephen was getting better day by day and the family was just, you know, starting to come back and starting to like um, come out of that that darkness. And then in 1997, Stephen Jr. was born a.k.a. Rosie. And to have a son, Stephen was so ecstatic. I mean, he loved his girls. He loved Amber. He loved Ashley. He loved Alyssa. But Stephen, as kind of like the man's man that he was, like to have a son, to Mm. carry his name, he was just super pumped about it. And everybody said that Stephen Jr. looked just like his dad. Like they were just twins from the beginning. And it was great. So then um, this young family of six now, they're moving forward. They're working towards their goals. Um, Stephen is having some back pain, but again, you know, they're, they're trying to move on and they're trying to move past that. In 2001, though, despite the pain and um, everything Stephen was experiencing, he realizes his dream um, to finally open a family car repair business. And he names it H&H Automotive right there in their hometown of Peoria. And H&H actually stood for his and hers, which I thought was Aww. super cute. Um, that is really cute. Yeah. And it is. That's exactly what, is it, what it is. It's a his and hers family business. And so Stephen worked on the cars and did all the machine stuff. And Michelle um, did all the bookkeeping and the front desk work for their business. So they were working together and providing for their family. And the Gibson family was thriving. I mean, they were living a good life. I looked at countless pictures of them that are all over the place of them spending summer road trips together, traveling to other states. They were just like this happy, smiling, all-American family. So things were going really, really well. They went well for a few years. And then in 2006, Michelle had to have foot surgery. I'm not exactly sure what she had to have foot surgery for, but after that surgery, she was also prescribed painkillers that she unfortunately began abusing. Oh, that's oh, that's so hard. Yeah, and this was actually no surprise to Stephen or the family because in 2007, Stephen had surgery to replace some discs in his back and he mm-hmm. was pre- prescribed stronger narcotics for the physical pain that he was now in, in addition to the pain he had been in since the accident. Yeah. And so they began to notice that um, Stephen was easy to anger now. Like the fun-loving Stephen of the past was 
like starting to fade away and Steven was beginning to be angry and not the same guy that they all remember. That is so sad. It is so sad, especially when you hear their story and then they opened the business and they did all of that stuff. It was around this time that they also noticed that both Michelle and Steven were becoming addicts and um, they were using the narcotics and the painkillers for more than just pain relief. And doctors kept prescribing it to both of them. So it's kind of like they both had an unlimited amount, right? So the relationship I feel at this time was just going from wonderful and loving to easing into toxic, right? Right. When, I mean, you've got two people who are that heavily dependent on pain medication uh, to the point that I mean, they're obviously addicted to it. And thinking about this is the early 2000s. I mean, I was still fairly young back then, but... Oh, you were? I wasn't. I I don't remember um, narcotic addiction being a big thing back then. I know nowadays you can barely get a prescription for anything and there's a ton of warnings that come with anything that's considered a narcotic and they limit them so much but I don't think that existed back then. Oh, I don't I definitely don't think that existed back then and I don't know if you I feel like they understood that like, you know, this is a a drug. Obviously, it has to be prescribed is not over the counter for a reason. But I don't think people were I think the feeling back then was, you know, this is a prescription. People can't abuse prescriptions. Like, but then you know what I think about? I think about, you know, how when you like you get a wisdom, your wisdom teeth pulled out, or you get prescribed some pain medication for something, and they give you, like, let's say they give you 20 pills and you don't end up taking it all, and then mm-hmm. you have like some leftover. Like, I think I have pain. Uh, medication prescriptions from like four years ago that I don't throw away. I don't know why, but it's in there, right? Because I didn't finish it because I didn't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I would think like back then, I mean, because if they can give you 20 pills for for your wisdom tooth, I mean, what are they giving for back pain, you know? Right. So... Anyways, um, they were just abusing it, and I'm pretty sure that they uh, they had doctors or ways of getting the painkillers and having it more frequently. And because it was the both of them, they probably had an unlimited supply. In 2009, their older daughters, Amber and Ashley, they move out of the house just to begin their own lives. There, were, there wasn't any particular reason. One went to college. The other was moving in with a boyfriend. So they just left the house. Um And this ended up causing a huge shift, I think, in the household. Um, I think like a lot of dysfunctional families or a lot of couples that um, have issues, once some children leave the house, there's less people to deflect on. And so so then they're more focused on each other. So when Amber and Ashley left, it really did cause a huge shift in the house and things began to change big time. And the Gibson family went from a fun, loving family to just violent and dysfunctional, unfortunately. Steven's temper was not only short now, but he was also becoming violent, which is something that really wasn't in his background before. 
Um, apparently Michelle had called 911 several times um, before the night of the murder, and they were all domestic violence calls that officers would respond to, but nothing was ever done about it because, like in many cases, charges weren't pressed by oh. the victim. So Michelle, they would the police would come out, they would talk to them, they would be like, you know, everything's okay now, and then no charges were pressed. And think about how different it like things could have turned out if even one of those times uh, Michelle had pushed just a little bit. Exactly. And pressed charges. But I could see, I mean, they they'd been married for a long time. Right. right. And, you know, when you're in a relationship that started out as great and as happy as theirs did, you're constantly going back. I mean, it's very similar to a drug addiction. I mean, you're constantly chasing that high. Who's to say they weren't chasing the high of their relationship this whole time? And like what was exciting before was no longer happening. So maybe, I, I don't know, you know, trying to, I don't know, get some of that back. So one particular call, though, and, and this is one of those where you were just saying, Crystal, had she just pressed charges, but one particular call in 2011 even became a hostage situation. What? Um, yes. When Michelle had called 911 to report that Stephen Sr. was holding a gun to her head. So police units were called. They even brought a negotiator out to the scene wow. um, who actually talked to Stephen and Stephen was like, okay, you're right. You know, I'll end this. And once again, since Michelle was refusing to press charges, there was little evidence the police could go on and it was dropped. I feel like there has to be some kind of statute that the police could have pressed charges anyway. Well, especially when you go so far as to call a negotiator out yeah. to the scene. I mean, th that's some money that the yeah. that is being spent on that. And yeah. time being taken away from other cases or other things happening at that moment is what so I was I, I feel like police dropped the ball oh, on that totally, one for sure. Totally. I don't see how they can just go, okay, well, okay. Well, you don't, you said it was fine. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. We'll take your word for it, even though we just spent hours exactly. negotiating with your husband. I feel like calling a negotiator is like, we just went from just a phone call to a like, okay, now this is like a big deal. Like life and death. Exactly. Obviously, all this violence and fighting was creating a very difficult home life for uh, the two remaining children at home, Alyssa and Stephen Jr., again, who went by Rosie. The family reports that um, the relationship between Stephen Sr. and Rosie was particularly strained. And this goes back to your first thought when I started this case and when you heard about Rosie. Um, Stephen was very bothered by the fact that um, Rosie was a little too feminine. That always bothered Stephen, who was, Interesting. Very, who was very much a man's man. And even though, I mean, there are plenty of pictures you can find online with like Stephen posing with Rosie at a high school football game. Um, because Rosie played high school football and he participated in all the man things that Steven Sr. liked to do, like four-wheeling and motorcycles. For, for me, when I was reading all of that and looking into all of that, I felt like we had a son that was trying to please his dad 
and, yeah. and trying to be what his dad wanted him to be. But still not enough, obviously. And so um, Stephen Sr., people do admit that he often ridiculed and made fun of Rosie a lot. Uh, oh, that's sad. Yeah, which in turn just obviously created more strain in the relationship with Michelle because, you know, that's her son, right? And right. Um, I know that sh- her and her children were very close. So this just added to the contention between them, to the stress in the marriage. Um, so things were just not getting better. And the discord in the family was creating just more and more distance between not only Stephen Jr. and his dad, um, but Stephen and Michelle and Alyssa as well. Things just started getting worse for Stephen Sr. In 2012, he was actually finally arrested for a DUI. And during that arrest, he was charged with assaulting an officer. So he um, he had in 2012 those charges and those were still pending at the time of his murder. Not even a year after that arrest, police then find him brutally murdered in his own home. Okay, so this is just like a whole kind of like train wreck. Right. And I mean, at this point, you know, all the police are very familiar with this family. Yeah, because they've been called to the house many times. They know what's going on. So again, that's probably why they kind of went in with a different lens coming in. Yeah, because, you know, if I was in their position, and I I mean, I'm saying this as a complete outsider, so who knows what I would have really done in that situation. But me sitting here years later on my not-so-comfortable armchair, (laughs) um, I would be thinking... You know, this house has had so many domestic violence calls and wellness checks. This guy is dead. My first thought would be like, something finally happened and they had to defend themselves. And so when they're coming in and they see this horrible, gruesome scene with this really weird story, I mean, I like it's just raising all of these red flags. Red flags, exactly. And that brings us back to Mr. Eric McBee. This 16-year-old Popeye's Chicken employee and Centennial High School student who basically goes from your typical teen with no prior criminal record to now a self-confessed murderer on the night of March 1st, 2013. So obviously they're like, uh, what is going on? Like you were saying, police knew right off the bat, no pun intended, you can edit that out that something was really not adding up here. Um, Melissa, Michelle and Alyssa and Rosie had seemingly solid alibi, though. All three stuck to and have the same story of their whereabouts that night. And so get ready, because this is what they did that night. Okay. The three left the house at 1030 because apparently Alyssa had an art project that was due, and so they needed to go shopping for supplies. Okay. Every parent has been there. I Okay. Exactly. I'm not judging why they went out at 1030 anymore. You know what? I'm going to judge because at 1030, I would tell my child, sorry, you are out of luck. Especially, I th- I believe this was a Friday evening. So I don't think. Oh, so gonna, they've got all weekend. Yes. I'm not going to be rushing out at 1030 because you forgot an assignment. No, thank you. The trio first stopped at Bash's, which is like a Fred Meyer or a Safeway. Um, 
which I looked up the hours at Bash's and they are open till 11. So that is, you know, it sounds legit to be your first stop, right? Because you leave at 1030, it closes at 11. Um, Then they went to Fry's, which I guess Fry's is like a, I don't know, like a Best Buy, Circuit City type of thing. And yeah, I actually have fries um, up near me. Oh, do so. you? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they stopped there and then they went to a burger drive through and then they went to a CVS pharmacy. So they were super busy for some late night shoppers, apparently. Right. Uh, but I mean, I get it because I'm one of those people that like, once I'm home, I'm home. And I don't want to leave. Exactly. So if we're going out, we're getting all the things done because I'm not going out. That's again. true. That is true. Yes. And, you know, this was all backed up by surveillance and cell phone records uh, for Michelle and Alyssa, at least. So, Ooh. yeah. So here's the deal. Rosie, so Stephen Jr., can be seen on the surveillance for most of those stops and outings. But then he suddenly disappears at 11.30. They no longer see Rosie with Alyssa or with Michelle at the last few stops. Oh. Now, when questioned later, and I thought it was funny, Michelle said, oh, yeah, um, we like to play Marco Polo with our cell phones when we're shopping, which I have never heard of. Anyone playing Marco Polo? I mean, I used to play that in the swimming pool with my eyes closed, but I'm not sure how you play it when you're at Fry's at 11 o'clock at night. I mean, I think I think um, I was about the same age as their kids, which I just dated myself. I don't think I've ever given a solid clue for my age, but that's that's a very solid clue that people know how old I am now. Um, Maybe this was just a thing in our generation, but I have done this before. With the phone? You played Marco Polo? Yeah, it was actually a date I went on one time. So basically, me and this guy I was dating, it was our first date. We went to Walmart. And basically, you give one person like 20 seconds to run and hide somewhere in the store. The person hiding takes a photo of something near them. And usually it's like really close up. So like if you're by the dog toys, for instance, you could take like a really close up photo of one of the dog toys and you send it to them and then you have to go find the person. Oh my goodness. So that probably really dated me because I said, I remember closing my eyes in the swimming pool. (laughs) I mean, I remember that too, but. (laughs) So anyways, um, yeah, you can't, he's, he's just not there anymore after 1130, but his cell phone records indicate he was constantly calling his mom on her phone after 1130. Okay. Um, so police find that super odd. They also find it odd that they cannot find the knife that Eric McBee says he used in the crime when Eric claims he left it in the bathroom. He says, yeah, I I left it in the bathroom and the police search all over. They cannot find the knife that Eric claimed he used as the murder weapon. But remember, he's got selective amnesia from this from the spice. spice he was smoking. <laughs> Maybe he misremembered. Maybe he left it in the spice cabinet. That was dumb, but um, <laughs> get it? Because anyway, it was really bad. <laughs> it was really bad. 
<laughs> so during their investigation of the crime scene, they're coming up with all sorts of things that they're just like, what in the world? Um, it, they don't find the knife, but they do find some bloody shoes that are just shoved into Rosie's closet that are clearly not his size. They find Eric's backpack with his cell phone his bloody shoes, I'm not quite sure why Eric took off his shoes at any point, but his bloody shoes and a printed picture of Steven Gibson inside his backpack, like a picture that was printed off of a printer. Weird. Of Steven. But also, Cena. so why are there two pairs of bloody shoes? Well, remember Karen? Karen was Did she there. show up barefoot too? Yep, she was barefoot as well. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah. I thought only Eric was barefoot. Okay. Karen was too. Also, an autopsy showed that Stephen had a very high level, Stephen Sr. had a very high level of opioids in his system. Um, So much so that he would not be sound mind enough to get into an altercation with anyone. Like, so the the guy was saying he had so much opioids and painkillers in his system that he would have been out and asleep like a zombie yeah he would not even be awakened no at all to even confront a random teenager that is in his house Mm -hmm. so two weeks after the murder police sit down again with eric a second time and this time the story is completely different Eric is finally, I think the spice has left his system now. And the fog is cleared. cleared. Two weeks in jail will probably do that to you. Yes. Um, But through more police investigation and Eric's new confession, the truth finally comes out. So Eric says that the morning before the murder, so on February 28th, he skipped school with another high school student named Robbie to smoke this famous spice. Right. They're hanging out, and they eventually make their way over to the Gibson house to hang out with Rosie and Alyssa and another high school friend, which was Karen. Apparently, it was ditch day at Centennial High School in Peoria that day, and only those five knew about it, apparently. Um, Yeah. Also, (laughs) where are Karen's parents? She's 14. Exactly. Exactly. And then also, so this was back in 2013. And I know in 2013, there was still the attendance phone call system, I think was happening in 2013. Or maybe I could be wrong. Maybe it happened afterwards. But like when you miss a class, especially in high school, there's an automatic attendance phone call that yeah, goes out. Yeah, and your parents get a phone call exactly. saying, hey, your student isn't at school. Exactly. So apparently... Um, Karen's mom and Eric's mom and Randy, his friend, uh, that came with them just didn't care. And Michelle Gibson also didn't care either because she was at home while all these teenagers were hanging out as well. Oh. Yes. So. So she's, she's not like a regular mom. She's a cool mom. She's a cool mom. Yes. (laughs) And so while they're over there, Eric says that Michelle and Rosie and Alyssa are all just hanging out with them in the living room. And they were just apparently having a therapy session and talking about how abusive Steven Sr. had been. And Michelle said to the teenagers there that if someone didn't do something about it, Steven was going to kill Rosie. 
She basically oh. told the kids, it's either him or us. Or your friend. Yeah, exactly. That is when Michelle then boldly offers Eric and his friend Randy, who is also there, $1,000 each if they helped in getting rid of Steven. Okay, she said that um, she would be getting an inheritance payout had Stephen died, and so she would give them $2,000 to split. And this was her plan, which she already had thought out. She said that Eric and Randy could subdue Stephen with chloroform and then take him to a park or under a bridge, shoot him in the head, and then just like sprinkle drugs all over to make it look like a drug deal gone wrong. It's like really complicated for some teenagers who have brain fog from smoking spice. Like, well, and I'm thinking, does she not watch crime shows? Like there, there's like, that's a bad plan. Like brush up on your snapped woman. Exactly. Like that was the worst plan that you thought of. Like I could think of a million better plans. Um, She kept emphasizing to them that they needed to still be able to find his body to have Stephen's inheritance pay pay out. So she obviously researched the inheritance policy and she knew Mm -hmm. what had to happen. Okay. And so she laid out the plan for them. Right. Randy, the friend who skipped school with them, didn't take this conversation seriously at all. And he ended up having to leave anyways because apparently he was already a troublemaker. And his parents were obviously the only responsible ones that got wind he wasn't at school. So they went and had him picked up. So Randy dodged a huge bullet because yeah. he left. But but also, why did Randy keep his mouth shut? Even if well, somebody is is like offering you money and giving you like clear cut plans. Granted, not a very good plan, but a clear plan. Exactly. Well, wouldn't you mention it to someone? Well, see, Randy was also all about the spice. And he said that he didn't really take that conversation seriously. And that Eric was always saying things he didn't mean or saying he was going to do things that he never did. So I think Randy was just thinking like, this was just one more thing. Yeah, this was just one more thing. And, you know, maybe I didn't hear it right because I'm all hopped up on spice and like, you know, he has to go home because he's in trouble. Right. So I think Aaron had the, or Aaron, Randy had like other things to worry about. But Randy does say the next day that he went to school and none of them were at school, he was like, oh, something's up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe at that point you tell someone. And he did. At that point he did. Once he heard about the murder and once that all came out, he did go to the police. Okay, good on him. Yes, so good on him for that. Eric and Karen, though, they were intrigued by the plan. And so Eric accepts the picture of Stephen because he had never seen him before. Uh, Yeah. I don't don't really have anything for that. Exactly. Here I thought in the initial confession, oh, he's like, he's friends with Rosie and he's friends with the family. So... So now, though, he is just this random acquaintance. Which makes it even more crazy that Michelle was like, hey, I'm just meeting you for the first time, but 
You seem like a trustworthy young man. Let me tell you about my abusive husband and our horrible marriage. Would you like me to help? Would you like to help me with that? Like, I mean, <laughs> bizarre. Mm-hmm. So um, he takes the picture of Stephen and a five-shot revolver that Michelle also gives him with the serial number filed off. Okay? so that's real normal. Exactly. So they're just hanging out. And that night, Stephen comes home from work and gets into a verbal altercation with Michelle. And that is when they all agree this plan has to take place tonight. So Eric says that Stephen goes to bed and Michelle leaves with Alyssa and Rosie, obviously to secure and establish a solid alibi. Mm -hmm. Um, Eric and Karen, because Karen is still there too, enter Stephen's bedroom where he is asleep. And Karen's involvement in this and the extent of her involvement is... Um, she just points the gun at Steven. Again, he's asleep. He's not getting up. So I think Karen was some sort of backup, but she has the gun pointed at Steven's head and Eric begins to bash him with the metal baseball bat that he got from Rosie's bedroom. And so Eric says that he hits a sleeping Steven on the head three times, but Steven is still moving. And apparently this freaks Eric out. So he calls Rosie who's with his mom and Alyssa, and Rosie says, I'll be there in a minute. So apparently, Michelle and Alyssa drive Rosie, drop him off at home, and then go Mm -hmm. back and do more shopping. To keep establishing their alibi that they were at the house. Uh Uh-huh. And Karen and Eric leave the room, and Rosie gets there. And Karen stays downstairs, and then Rosie and Eric go upstairs to find Stephen Gibson now standing and holding a sock to the side of the head. And I think I can only assume this is because of adrenaline. I because I yeah, I, I would it's ha- just a knee jerk like oh yeah. I've got this going on because I'm not gonna lie I've done this a similar sort of thing before. <laughs> um, I was road tripping by myself and I was on my way home. I've, I've done it many times. Oh, wow. um, in this particular time, I was driving home. It was late. I was, I was tired. I'd been driving all day, but I was so close to home. And I am a person that I get stress nosebleeds. And it oh was, my, gosh. Just, I, my nose just started gushing. Um, for whatever reason, the only thing I could reach in my front seat was a pair of jeans. And so I was driving <laughs> down the freeway going 70, holding jeans up to my face oh my <laughs> because I didn't have any napkins in my car. I'm like, you know, I can wash my jeans. It's fine. But I need something to soak up the blood so I can just get home. You didn't know what to do. Yeah. Holy moly. Stress nosebleeds. So I can I can see the headspace he was in that like he's just like you know I've got blood I don't know what's up we're gonna grab a sock we're gonna exactly take care and of this. also yeah. he's like loaded up with opioids and he gets a hit to the head so I mean because it's almost like a chicken with their head cut off they're still good I mean it it's just like a a reaction knee jerk reaction yeah. yeah so um when they find him standing. 
Eric begins to hit him with the bat again. And the force of him hitting him with the bat again pushes him um, towards the master bath. So now Stephen is laying down in the master bathroom. And Rosie, with a knife in his hand, gets on top of his father and stabs him in the chest multiple times. And just with so much force. Because in the autopsy... It was like deep, deep stab wounds in this man's chest. Um, and you know that it's it's all those it's years up. of feeling like he wasn't good enough. Yes. And just all this anger and all these feelings just, that he was just getting out. Yeah. And just all which, built up in him. Which accounts for the overkill yeah. of all the stab wounds plus slashing his neck. Well, and I can imagine too, like that much anger. Like I've been so angry where I see red, you know, and and you you get like this. You're just you're just mad. So the strength that might come with that, if you were trying to really hurt someone, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's probably explosive. You know, so when Rosie is satisfied, he gives the knife back to Eric and Eric just decides he's going to finish this, even though I'm pretty sure Mr. Gibson was already deceased at this point. Right. He slits Mr. Gibson's throat. And the police said that um, when they uncovered his body, his face was unrecognizable because his right side of his uh his head was like completely caved in and oh. the and the slit was so deep that he was almost basically decapitated so this was pretty gruesome and pretty violent yeah so um now that he is dead they decide okay we need to go through with this master plan that Mrs. Gibson set up and we need to get him in a truck and take him to a park so it still looks like a drug deal gone wrong. I'm sorry, guys, but when there's it's that much, <laughs> exactly. But you know, I I give them props for kind of sticking to their original vision. Okay, so they wrap his body in some towels and blankets, and this is where Karen comes back into the picture. She helps uh, bring the body downstairs. They Eric and Karen work together while Rosie backs the truck up into the garage, and uh, they drag the body downstairs and try to get him on a dolly. Uh, Meanwhile, it's about 1.30 a.m., and Michelle and Alyssa come home at about 1.30 a.m., and they try to help and clean up the blood and get rid of evidence, right? And But they're still wanting to stick to the plan. But as Karen and Eric are trying to get the body into the truck, which, I mean, I believe Stephen Gibson was a was not the tallest man, but I think he was a stocky, solid guy. And mm-hmm. um, and this is a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. And it is absolute dead weight. Dead weight. Like in the most literal sense. Exactly. So they are, I mean, I can't even imagine what this looked like, but they are trying to get this man into the back of the truck They hear random sirens in the background, and they both just flee on foot. Karen and Eric, barefoot, they leave. The body is laying in the garage. So this is when Michelle gives up on her well-executed plan and decides that she is going to call 911 and just say that her husband is dead in the garage. And 
cross her fingers and hope for the best. Eric actually tells police that the only reason he returned to the scene of the crime was to retrieve his cell phone and backpack. <laughs> oh, so he only yes confessed because they happened to be there and he was like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literally caught red-handed and that's the only reason he was like oh sup yeah which i mean going up to a police officer with bloody clothes i mean was his plan to say yeah i know my clothes are bloody but could i get my uh could i get my backpack and right. myself like <laughs> i used to work in a grocery store and when the store closes for the night you close the front doors you stop letting people in but you always get that one person who like we closed at 1 a.m so you get that one person at like 12 59 that's like can i just get i just need one thing and so i'm picturing eric walking up to this crime scene he's like i i know you got this yellow tape but just real quick i just i've got to run in I come out yeah i'll just i'll just grab it really quick i'll, I'll just be real quick, quick. My, like my shoes they might be in there too yeah <laughs> And that's probably when Karen was like, yeah, and I need my uh, bloody shoes that are in the closet that I tried to hide. Thank you. Because that's what ended up, those were the shoes that were in Rosie's closet was the, uh, was Karen's shoes. Why would they leave their (laughs) shoes behind? Because your clothes are all bloody. Do these people not watch crime shows like we do? I don't understand. Or even basic like logic yeah when I'm walking up to a person or someone approaches me I'm not looking at their shoes first no no especially if someone walks up to me with like full I mean they (laughs) these people had to be full of blood yes they were one brutally beating and stabbing this person but also handling his body yeah yeah, it's it's bizarre. And you know, when they collected Stephen's clothes from or not Stephen's clothes, I'm sorry, Eric's clothes that he was wearing the night of the murder, they were blood soaked. And the only person's blood on his clothes was that of Stephen Gibson Sr. Like, so no one in this attack, nobody else bled or was hurt. This was just all so when you when I described the blood smeared on the walls and down the hall, it was all from this one man, which is just, like that's mind blowing. Yes, yes. That, again, that a human body contains that much blood. Yes, yeah. It's it's crazy. So, needless to say, one month later, after now Eric's second. Um, confession and the police investigation, all three, Michelle, Rosie, and Alyssa are arrested for the involvement in the murder of Stephen Gibson. Again, who is their own father and Michelle's husband of 20 years. Yeah. Which if you think about that, like how do you go from their, you know, cute love story to 20 years later, him laying in cold blood. Like, honestly, it's just... It's a reach. But also, like, how quickly things turned. Oh. Because things... It's not like it went from zero to 60 over the course of 20 years. It was like a switch flipped exactly. somewhere around, like, 15 years. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, 
I'm still going back to the police, just completely dropping the ball oh, yeah. on all these domestic violence calls. And I get it that their hands are tied yeah. as far as, you know, she calls and she says, he threw me into a wall. Mm-hmm. And... They show up and she goes, oh, you know, I'm sorry. It was just a misunderstanding. Yeah. Everything's good. Now, I get that. Yeah. I get that they have their hands tied. It happens all the time. But after a couple, you would think, especially the negotiator one, you would think, okay, we need to look into this a little bit more. Even still, if there were several calls that ended up like they show up and she says, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing, they still can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. But when it gets to the point that she's literally being held hostage, there has to be some kind of federal law that's being broken. There. Yeah, yeah. So why, why was he not some kind of charge brought up of like state versus? It doesn't have to be that she's she's charging him. It could be the the police at that point could right. have a case. I would think against him, especially when he assault after he assaults the officer, which he was finally, you know, arrested for after that DUI. But, um, you would think they could then bring in all the, that other stuff after that to show at least at the very least a history of violence that this guy Yeah. Has. But there's such unrelated charges. That's I can true. see how they couldn't bring him up on them. That's true. When they're all arrested, so police had been investigating Michelle since, like, the night of, right? They, because, again, they knew something was off. So when police were investigating, they found that she had already a very active online dating um, life for about a year leading up to the murder. she has zero chill. Yes. They uncovered numerous sexting conversations on her BlackBerry with various men. And she had various dating profiles on, like, various different platforms. Her two handles that she used on her dating, which I don't know why I uh, felt compelled to add them, but I do, in case anyone needs a new dating um, handle. For their online stuff, uh, Sweet Lips to Taste 69 was one of them, and Tall Hot Blonde for You. So those are available now, guys. If, if you want to <laughs> I do use not recommend them. using them. She had looked up more than 6,000 profiles of potential wow. suitors. So when you say she has no chill, she has no chill. She was out on the prowl, okay? Okay, but at that point, why not just divorce? Exactly. Well, that could be the answer to a lot of these situations that end up in murder. Honestly, because you're unhappy. Obviously, he's unhappy. Your kids are unhappy, It's not like you can say, oh, we're staying together for the children because they're not. No, no. So why not just leave? I don't, I don't understand that either because, and obviously history repeats itself. Like you, you can't say that these people who choose this route haven't seen or watched news a bunch of times and see examples of this, right? But they still have to. See if they can get away with it. I don't Right, because they're like, oh, but I'm going to get away with it. I know they didn't, but like, I will. With my master, take them to the park and shoot them in the head and sprinkle drugs around them plan. Okay, okay. 
Yeah, so she was active. She winked at about 80, 98 men um, online. She received and exchanged over 33 emails with men on these sites. Um, she even created a Match.com profile four months before the murder. And on that profile, she had already identified herself as a widow even before. What? Yes, way before he was even dead. So she had been thinking about this for a long time. Wow. She even continued after the murder to check all of the dating sites that she was active on. And please say that she was even looking at Match.com minutes before she was served with the warrant for her arrest. So, I mean, even when police are like, at the door. She's like, hold on, let me send a wink. (laughs) Um, So according to the prosecution, Michelle's motive was clear, just money and sex. She found that she was uh, left unsatisfied by a husband who was addicted to painkillers, and her only way out was to kill her husband and collect his inheritance. And for this, she needed to use her own children and their friends to carry out the crime. Her defense claimed that Michelle was an emotionally and physically abused woman, which, yes, she probably was, and only acted to protect herself from the man she feared and played a minor role in the murder. I'm sorry, but she didn't play him. Right. How I understand that defense attorneys have a job to do, but also how disgusting that they're trying to use battered woman syndrome in this. Exactly. Exactly. Because again, if she was a, an emotionally and physically abused woman, uh, and again, I, I, I'm not in her spot, so I don't know, but press some charges after the police are called to your home several times. Like do, if you really want to protect yourself and your children, press the charges, you know? Right. And I mean, even if you're not pressing charges, like, you can't claim to be acting on the... They can't use the psychological defense of battered woman syndrome Yeah, if she's trying to hire other people to do this. Battered woman syndrome is very clearly about self-defense in the moment. And... It's just, well, and I'm pretty sure that battered women aren't on several dating sites trying to find another man while they're and identifying, identifying themselves, themselves as widows exactly. four months before the guy dies. Exactly, exactly. So in the end, Stephen Jr., Rosie, who at 17, when he was brought to trial, he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and hindering prosecution, and he was sentenced to 22 years in prison. Eric McBee, who was also 17 by the time he was sentenced, um, pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and um, abandoning or concealing a dead body. He received 16 years because of the deal he made to help prosecution against Michelle Gibson at her trial. So Mm -hmm. he full-on made a deal, testified at Michelle's trial. Uh, During the sentencing, Eric was portrayed as a guided missile who was the victim of manipulation by Michelle and Rosie. 
Eric told the judge when he spoke to the judge at his sentencing that it had not been him. It would have been somebody else that they recruited for their plan. His mom and his sister told the judge that Eric was a good person who was very committed to helping his single mom and um, his deaf sister at home and that he was just a good soul. Oh, so, you know, I mean, I'm not making excuses no. for him, but in his mind, he was probably like, Money. man, that $1,000 yeah, will would, go so far. Yeah, because he, I mean, it was his single mom that was raising him and his 18-year-old sister. And, um, and you know, to be honest, when you look at Eric McBee and his, I looked at his his Facebook profile, I mean, yeah, he looks like a a typical, like, grungy angst teen, but he had zero criminal record. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think manipulation was a big part of it too, but I'll tell you some more things about Eric in a second that might make you think differently. Alyssa pleaded guilty to conspiracy and hindering an investigation, and she was tried as an adult and she was sentenced to five years in prison. She was let out after four years um, of that sentence and uh, just finished with her parole, actually. And then, Oof, yeah, okay, I know. And I actually uh, looked up Alyssa, and yeah. Karen, who was detained and let go right after the murder, was tried as an adult as well, and she pled guilty to aggravated assault and tampering with the evidence as part of a deal to testify against Michelle's trial. So she actually only served one year in prison and was released in 2016. And then, finally, to the main one, on November 24th, 2014, after just a 14-day trial, Michelle was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder by using her teenager or her teenager and his friends to execute the plan. She was later sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And Good. yes, and all the articles I read had the same same comment that Michelle during her entire 14-day trial showed zero emotion, even through the crime scene photos, even when her children testified, nothing. She just sat there. And then on the day of her sentencing, a letter was read on behalf of Stephen Gibson Sr.'s surviving family. They told the judge that the morning of the murder, Michelle's last post on Facebook read, it's a beautiful day to live in Arizona. And just a few hours later is when Stephen Gibson was murdered. And Stephen's aunt said in her letter, yes, today is a beautiful day to live in Arizona because I won't ever have to see you anymore. And directed her comment to Michelle. I like the aunt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just a couple of fun facts for you. Eric McBee, in my research... When he was 15 years old, he actually made headlines. He was in the news. And I don't know if you ever remember hearing about this, but this was in uh, December of 2011. So you were probably, I don't know, one. But um, <laughs> he, he made, he made uh, the murder of Stephen, or he made the headlines because he, and this was a year before the murder, he claimed to fall asleep on a plane on his way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he was being sent for boarding school. So, oh. so by mom, 
So mom's comments about him being a good soul, I don't know if she's sending him to boarding school like two days after Christmas. And I guess when the plane landed in Tulsa, Eric didn't get off the plane and instead ended up in St. Louis where he was missing for 24 hours, 24 whole hours before he ended up making his way to a police department where he asked for help. Mom, yeah. Flight staff goes through the entire place. How did they miss him? I have no idea. I have no idea. Mom tried to sue the airlines, apparently, and Eric was never sent back to boarding school. I'm just, I'm picturing this lanky-ass kid, like, Mm -hmm. army crawling under the chairs. Yeah, yeah. But even that, I just don't understand. I I know. know. I know. And then, you know, like I was telling you, I was looking through his Facebook page. And um, again, like my feeling was he was just like this confused kind of just kid because his very last post was actually on February 27th. 2013. This was two days before the murder. And all it read was, I can't sleep. And that just kind of made me sad. Like, I just feel like he was just this. But then he had another post like three weeks earlier that said rape chickens. So I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, Uh. I know. So I went back and forth being like (laughs) sad, but I don't know. You can edit that out too. Um, But then also, he's just, he's a dumb kid. He's a dumb kid. Exactly. Dumb kids post dumb kid things. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why kids never post dumb things online. I can't because imagine. you'll go to jail Ex- and we will find Exactly. Them. And they will still be on Facebook because I still found his. And just one last fun fact about this case. Karen Molina, you know, she only served one year, but she was just arrested again in March of 2017 in Surprise, Arizona, which I thought, oh, surprise. Uh, Lovely. Yeah. For having a relationship with a minor. So uh, she's got a lengthy little record starting for her as well. That is a very sugar-coated way to phrase child molestation. Exactly, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, it could it could be some form of a statutory rape charge. Um, well, apparently it was some family members that had found some messages on her phone that she was exchanging with another female who was like, 16 years old, I want to say, 15 or 16 years old. And at this point, Karen is now, so 2013, she was 14. 14. I'm trying to figure out. Carry the one. 18? (laughs) She would have been 18 in 2017. Yeah. Depending on when her birthday falls, she might be 19. So we've got another 16, 19 situation uh here. And who knows? She may have just about yeah. Depending on her birthday, I should have looked her birthday up. But this is Sometimes my first you can't time. Find that stuff, especially because she was a minor back then. But and this is my first time, and I. I don't you did know. so good. Did I? I don't know. It felt good. It's feeling good. I don't. Yeah. Um, but that was the case of Stephen Gibson, and that was my first time. So. Yeah. And I mean, I enjoyed having you here. Oh, good. Well, thank you. I enjoyed being here. And I feel like... um, I mean, I would love to have you back on a continual basis. I would love to give you a name. Yay. I think 
I don't know. What did we start with? Did we start with Princess Your Poppy? Princess Poppy. <laughs> um, that's that's a little bit of a mouthful. Oh, maybe the but... listeners can give me a name. Oh, that would be fun. Wouldn't that be good? Yeah, let's see. Um, I would love to hear name Princess Poppy. Yeah, I would love to hear suggestions. It it needs to be family friendly. Yes, (laughs) and it can't be a lot of syllables. And I need to be able to pronounce it. (laughs) So please, no tongue twisters. Um, Yeah. So I think uh, if we. If we all agree, if me and you both agree, I would love to have you on a continual basis. Yay! I would love it. I'm so excited. So everybody, welcome our new co-host. We'll name her next week, I suppose. Yes, I would Uh, love... If we come up with something. I'm excited to hear all the suggestions. But you know what, guys? Um, You know, uh, be good to each other. Be kind. Yes. Be decent humans. We'll see you guys later. Yes. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. I like that you're waving. You can stop recording.